Well, we all, from time to time, have our good weeks and our hard weeks, don't we? You might have that in your own life. Some weeks are good, some weeks are more difficult. Some weeks are easier, some weeks are harder. It's true of all of us, it's true of me as well. I've got to be honest with you, there are some times when I think to myself, I don't think I can do this anymore. And this week was one of those weeks. It was hard. Just this week, somebody wrote me a letter in response to a letter I wrote them saying, I no longer believe in God. I think Jesus was a good teacher, but that's it. Another family said to me, we don't want to go to this church anymore. We'd rather go to another local church in town. Now, for me... That brings all sorts of things to the surface for me. Sadness and anxiety, stress and self-doubt. Me saying to myself, am I really the right person? Surely if I was better at it, they'd have stuck around with Jesus or stuck around with our church or whatever it might be. Am I the right person for for the thing, for the scenario that God has given to me? Now, perhaps you're the same. Perhaps you have a bad week in whatever it is that you are up to and you're involved in a particular ministry somewhere and you think to yourself, I know myself so very well, how could I possibly be the right person for that ministry? Or maybe you just think to yourself, I'm just hard pressed coming to church actually and I know myself all too well, how could I possibly even sit in that church? I know myself all too well, we call that the imposter syndrome, don't we? We all feel it to some degree. And actually, it makes sense that we do. After all, what we believe is that we've been saved by grace. We haven't done anything to be saved. In fact, we've only brought to the table our sin. So if you feel as though you're not the right person, or you feel as though you know yourself and your sin too well, or you feel like, you're an imposter in the ministry of the gospel that God has called you to, then this passage is for you. This passage is for you. In this passage, on two separate occasions, Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for such things? You see chapter three, uh, sorry, chapter 2 and verse 16, the second half of that verse, he asks this very question. Who is sufficient for these things? And then again down in chapter, five, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. If you think you can't do what God has given you to do, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul thought this too. And he wrote this passage for all of us. As we continue in the book of 2 Corinthians, we pick up where we left off last week, which was Paul explaining to the Corinthians, I didn't come and visit you because I actually love you. I know I said I would come, but if I came, it would be more difficult than if I stayed, uh, than if I stayed behind. So I stayed behind and wrote you a letter out of love for you so that you would actually grow in Christ instead of getting more angry with me and therefore not hearing the message that I would preach. And today he turns to that message and says, who is actually sufficient To bring a message like this to the Corinthians or to the world or to Helensburg or to Croydon or wherever else it might be. Who is sufficient for this? 
And our passage today says, God is sufficient in our weakness. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but before we do, a reminder that we answer some questions after the talk tonight. You can do that by going onto slido.com on your device using the hashtag HBSP. And also, uh, we've ordered a bunch more because these sold out last week of this book here, Weakness is the Way by J.I. Packer. Small, easy to read and uh, very helpful. Uh, If you want one, they're on their way and uh, we'll get you one. Just let us know afterwards. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, be with us tonight. We really do ask for your help as we look at your word. We ask that we might uh, put aside all of the things that have happened today so that we might see what you are saying to us clearly and that we therefore might trust you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's who's, uh, familiar with the idea of a ticker tape parade? Is anyone ever familiar with some of those things? The older you are, the more uh, regularly you will have seen these sorts of things. Here's an example of a ticker tape parade. Now, I couldn't find a more recent example. This happens to be in 1989. That's how long ago it was. But what would happen is this was actually the Australian cricket team, which is why I know about it. Uh, But the Australian cricket team came back from England and they'd won and nobody expected them to win. So they put on a big ticker tape parade down George Street in Sydney. And I think the reason why ticker tape parades don't happen anymore is because no office buildings have got windows that open anymore. Because what you would do is you'd open the office window and you'd take all of the shredded paper that you had in your office that had been shredded all the documents and for whatever reason makes no sense to me actually when you think about it you throw it down at the people that are parading through the center of Sydney now it happened for all sorts of people happened for Olympic teams and sporting teams and all of these sorts of things they would have a big parade and people would line George Street like this to see this ticker tape parade And people do this sort of stuff all the time, don't they? Parades up and down uh, George Street or wherever else it might be. These sorts of things are not new. Parades like this are not new. Indeed, in Paul, the Apostles' time, there were parades in main streets as far as you could see. In Paul's days, the, the main parades that you'd have down the main street of any town was for a military victory. They would highlight the military victory that they'd had. They'd show off their pomp and ceremony about how they'd won the military battle. And to be honest with you, it was quite brutal. The parade would often look a bit like this. First of all, would come down the street, some flags and some some, uh, soldiers and perhaps some trumpets and some noise along the way. And then in the middle, this is where it got brutal. The captive leaders of the nation that they had just defeated would be paraded down the main street, literally heading towards their death. After these captive leaders, there would be people that would come down and swing burning incense to let a a smell go throughout the town and big clouds of smoke would go out in this parade to let everyone know that this is the smell of victory. Have you ever wondered where that phrase comes from? It's the smell of victory. That's where it comes from. The victory smell that comes as the incense goes down the street. And it's in verse 14 of chapter 2 that Paul has in his mind a parade like this. Look at what he says. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now Paul speaks about himself as being in this parade. But it's interesting that he sees himself as one of the captives heading towards death. That seems a strange analogy. But he sees himself as one of these captives going in the direction of the victory of Christ, being captivated by what Christ has 
done but led on to death and suffering and affliction as we've already seen throughout this letter. And Paul uses this analogy to show how God declares his victory in the world through his followers who are heading towards death and affliction and weakness. See, most of the time, both in Paul's day and our own, it's those with power and prestige and performance that get to the top of the tree. These are the people that get things done in the world. But according to the Apostle Paul and according to God's way of doing things, this is not how God works. It is through suffering and affliction and weakness that the message of Jesus comes to the world. It is through suffering and affliction and weakness that God's glory is most greatly seen. See, this is true of all of the servants of God's people. Think about the Old Testament for a minute. Whether it's the Old Testament uh, stories that you've read about, or whether it's Hebrews chapter 11 that has the hall of faith of these people, all of the people listed in those passages are deeply flawed people. They would be all cancelled on social media today. All of them. And yet God used them. He used them in all of their weaknesses and foibles and failures to be his servants. Of course, it's true of Jesus himself too, isn't it? Through the weakness of a man dying on a cross, salvation comes to the whole world. Seems a silly way to bring salvation to the world, to bring a kingdom to the world. But it comes at the weakness of the cross. You see, Paul sees himself as walking captive towards suffering, affliction, weakness and death ultimately. And by doing so, that will bring the message of the gospel of Christ to the world. And he says in the second half of verse 15, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to, those, uh, uh, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul changes it just a little bit now and says, not only are we the captives, but we're the way that God spreads his aroma throughout the community, throughout the world. We are the aroma of Christ through us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Smell is very powerful, isn't it? Now, in our family, it's not quite as powerful for me. I don't have quite the sense of nostrils that Kel has. Kel's got really good nostrils. She can smell all sorts of things. When we go on holidays, Kel says, I can smell holidays, can't you? That's what you say. That's what you, and you can maybe describe it later to people what it smells like. I can't quite get it what it means, but does anyone else smell holidays? Some people, Amelia does. A few people, okay, all right, good, good, Paul does, good. You can smell holidays, that's fine. But for me, it's more like the obvious thing, you know, the 11 herbs and spices when they're put in the beautiful oil. That's, that's the type of smell that gets me going. The Budding's barbecue, you know that one? With the onions on the bottom for legal reasons, you've got to do that. In our Bible study group, we're obsessed actually with all sorts of things, but we're obsessed with Tim Tams in our Bible study group. And uh, somebody shared this on our, uh, on our Bible study Facebook group this week. Look at this. I don't know if it's legit or not, but imagine if it was. That is a game changer. Tim Tam perfume. I mean, I'd wear that. I would dead set wear that. And I'd wear it to church and you'd love it. You'd love it. 
Uh, these are some good smells, aren't they? But I tell you what, it's not just all about good, is it? If you go the wrong way past Lucas Heights and the tip and the wind's blowing the wrong way, you all know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's obvious, no, he hate that smell. Get it away from me. Smell is a very powerful sense that we all have. And Paul says, we, followers of Christ, as we preach and proclaim Christ to one another and this world in weakness and suffering and affliction are the aroma of Christ. But it's a different sort of aroma. For some, they like the smell. It's like whatever it is that you like the smell of, that's what it's like. But for others, it's like the tip. Unless you like that for some reason, which doesn't make any sense. But you know what I mean. For some, it's the smell of life. And for some, it's the smell of death. The message of Christ is this aroma that goes out into the world. And Paul says, this is what we do. We speak the message of Christ and Christ himself is at work through us. God is at work through us. We're not peddlers of the gospel who parade ourselves in success and performance and outward power and miracles. But instead we are displayed in weakness and affliction and suffering for the glory of God. See, here's the thing. The success and the performance and the miracles and the outward power, that belongs to God. And when God's people go and steal from God what belongs to him by doing those things themselves, then God doesn't look good, just people do. There's no glory to God in that. This is what the teachers in Corinth were doing. It's what people do today. We better have more miracles, more outward power, more performance, more success in order that people might know God's at work here. No, that's not what Paul says. And humanly speaking, it makes no sense to have a weak and afflicted and suffering person speak a message just out of their mouth. That could be for God's glory. Humanly speaking, it makes no sense. And so Paul says in verse 16, who is sufficient for such things? The answer is no one. No one is sufficient for those things. But only if you take up your cross and follow Jesus. Look at what it says here in, uh, from Kent Hughes, as I read this week. The fragrance of Christ can only come through being led in triumphal procession as captives of the cross of Christ. See, the good news for us is this. If you've had a bad week, like I have, you can be reminded here, as I have been this week, that God works through us. And that God speaks through us. And that we are the aroma spreaders of God. We still have a task of spreading that aroma, but God works through us. Through us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere because it's his ministry. So this is the second point we want to talk about tonight. You see it in the rest of the passage. It's God's ministry. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, not, uh, this is chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. It's his work and we are his servants. It's his ministry and we are his weak servants. Now, the ministry itself is not weak. That's what we're going to look at at the moment. But it's God's ministry. It's a personal ministry, a life-giving spiritual ministry and a glorious ministry. Let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, God's ministry is a personal ministry, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. Look at what Paul says there. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, 
written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Uh, Those teachers who had replaced Paul in Corinth had come in with big reputations and letters of recommendation and lots of people on their resume saying how good they were in teaching about, uh, about God in other places, listing their stories and the amazing acts that they could do. And Paul says, we don't need any such thing. The ministry we conducted is written on your hearts. See, if the ministry that Paul was conducting was about power and influence, about your feelings and emotions, then the other teachers would win hands down. They could speak better, they could evoke your feelings and emotions better than anyone, and they could influence you in any other way. Paul was not good at this. He's described in this letter as not a very good speaker. No, Paul's ministry was a simple one. He walked into Corinth as apparently not a very good speaker. He spoke just normal words about Jesus... And by God's grace, Jesus came to reside in the hearts and minds in the very core of the people of Corinth. Paul says, that's the proof of my work. That's the proof of God's work. We don't need outward displays of power, for your heart has been changed where Jesus now sits on the throne of your heart. He's now in charge. That's proof positive that God is at work. It's a personal ministry. See, the ministry of God has always been personal. God doesn't work by external means. He works internally. As God's word is spoken and Christ is made king in the heart of that person, in the core of that person, as Jesus takes up residence and rules over that person's life, Paul came into the town and proclaimed a weak message. And yet Christ still took up residence in the heart of these people. And that's proof that God is at work because human beings can't do that. Human beings can't make that happen. Only God can. And Paul says, this is our letter of recommendation. The gospel has been written on your heart and Christ is in your heart by faith. It's a personal ministry of God. But it's also a spiritual ministry. Look again at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here Paul starts to compare the Old Covenant or the Old Testament with the New Covenant or the New Testament. And he says, the Old Testament, the law, the Old Covenant, it actually changed no one. It only brought about failure through human effort to try and please God and it didn't work and as a result it brought about death only. On the other hand, the new covenant is not external with rules on the outside that you must keep but internal, a spiritual work that changes lives. Now again, this ought to encourage each one of us. For as we speak the word of God one to another in this building, in this group of people or in the community around us, God is at work to change people's hearts personally and spiritually. Who is sufficient for such a task? Answer, no one. Except that as we proclaim Christ, God is at work changing people's lives. You see, if what we hope to bring about is change in people's lives by rules and regulations and laws, we know that these things will only bring death. 
but God can bring about change to the heart, lasting change, new birth. Again, this is not something we can do in someone's life. It's something that only God can do. God can only do a personal ministry. God can only do a spiritual ministry. And Paul goes on to say this ministry is a glorious ministry. Having just spoken about the old covenant and the new covenant in verses 7 to 11, Paul goes on to compare these two things some more. You might remember from the Old Testament, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get uh, the law and the Ten Commandments from God. And as he went up there, amazing things happened. There was lightning. There was a a big light show basically on top of this mountain. Amazing wonders were done. And Moses himself actually saw the back of God's robe as he walked in front of him. And so close was he to God in that way that it caused Moses' face to glow for a few days afterwards. And yet, even with all of this, the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the lightning and the face glowing and all this sort of stuff, the people didn't change it was still a ministry of death but as glorious as all of those things are paul says the ministry of the gospel in the new covenant is even more glorious look again at verse 7 of chapter 3 now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the israelites could not gaze at moses face because of its glory which was being brought to an end Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, it's another one of those passages like we had the other week, two weeks ago, which is comfort, 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 comfort. We say it so many times, what is he actually saying? Glory is in this passage so many times. What's he even saying? Here's what he's saying. The ministry of Jesus in the new covenant that we have today is more glorious than what Moses did. Doesn't seem right, does it? But Paul says it's so different that it's like trying to compare a light bulb with the sun. That's the difference we're talking about here. As we proclaim Christ to each other and to the world around us, God changes people and he grows people. Now you might think to yourself, that's dumb. There's nothing glorious about anybody speaking just words. That's boring. That is the most boring thing in the world. Speaking words about Jesus. Boring. God says that's more glorious than anything Moses did. People sometimes say to me, actually, why doesn't God choose to do those amazing, miraculous things today? You know, parting the water apart and big lightning shows on mountains and all sorts of stuff. If he wanted to show us how great he was, why didn't he do those things? It's interesting as well, isn't it, that in the New Testament, as Jesus does those things, those amazing, miraculous things, people don't actually respond in faith. They walk in the other direction, strangely enough. Paul says here, God is doing an even more glorious thing than Moses did. As people speak words out of weak, fallen, afflicted, suffering mouths, God is doing his work. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But Paul says it's not just ridiculous, it's like comparing a light bulb to the sun. It's not even close. 
When you look at the ministry of Moses and how his face was even glowing as he came down the mountain, he's the light bulb, you're the sun. Know this, the ministry of your, that you are conducting, the ministry of the word of God through a weak, afflicted, suffering mouth is like the sun to a light bulb when we're talking about the New and Old Testament. The glory that God has in that ministry is so great. And so Paul says, who's sufficient for that? Do you often think to yourself, I wonder if I could do what Moses did? I wonder if I could ever, of course I couldn't do that. I mean, look at how great he was, all the amazing things he did with the plagues and this and that, and he was up on the mountain. What an amazing character. Paul says, you've got a more glorious ministry than him. God employs us to bring his word to each other and to the world around us. And as we do, we're involved in God's ministry, a personal ministry, a spiritual ministry, and a glorious ministry. It's his ministry. And so Paul can say in our final section tonight in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Since we have a glorious, wondrous, infinitely greater ministry than Moses, the ministry of the word of God to people, we are very bold. We are bold to bring this message uh, to people that don't already know Jesus, to speak that message to people that they might come to know Jesus. But this is not the only ministry of the word. We are also bold to bring that word to one another so that we might grow in Christ as well. This is how Christians grow, by God's word being spoken. And so if you're like me and you think to yourself, I can't do that. I'm weak. I'm timid. I know my life too well. How could I possibly be involved in the ministry of the gospel? In fact, I've tried it before and I failed. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. Remember this passage God is sufficient for his ministry in our weakness. He leads us in our weakness, heading towards death of all things, so that we might be the aroma of Christ to the community of the church and to the world. And it's his ministry. Now, of course, the chapter headings and numbers were added in much, much later. But in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, having this ministry... By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I'm not going to preach the message from chapter 4 yet, but I'm ready to go. Because this message is, well, this, this is what we do. We do so often lose heart. We do so often say, it couldn't possibly be me that could do it. Am I good enough for this? We think to ourselves, I've got self-doubt. Am I the right person for the job? The answer is no, you're not. But God is sufficient. God is the one who makes us competent. You're not the right person for the job, but God has called you to the task anyway because in your weakness, his power is displayed. He actually doesn't want you to be impressive or amazing or fantastic or brilliant. That's kind of the point. Because the more it's about us, the less it's about him. And I need to learn that lesson as much as anyone. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5, we are, uh, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. If God could use weak, afflicted people like you and me, then that is glory upon glory, because God is sufficient in our weakness. I'm going to take a few moments for you to maybe ask a question or make a a moment of reflection 
so let's do that. We've got 90 seconds or so to do that, and I'll come back and answer a few questions in a minute. All right, thank you for uh, your questions. Let me answer a couple of things that are here. Uh, The first one says this, uh, how do we continue to share the good news of Jesus when it feels as though no one wants to hear it? Um, I don't know necessarily who asked that question, but I understand your feelings because I feel the same way. Um, But when that's the case, I need to remind myself that it's not necessarily the way it is. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, and this is uh, true of our area five years ago at least, but five years ago, the people in our area uh, who identified themselves in the census as Anglicans, so that's not Christians of any type, it's just Anglican people, 33% roughly speaking of the community around us. So one in three households would consider themselves somehow Anglican by affiliation. Now that can't be true, of course, because... I mean, that's a third of our community being a part of our community, which, of course, we know is not true. But nonetheless, it does say something about their willingness to engage in spiritual things. Now, they might just put it there, and when you actually talk to them, they're not interested at all. That might be true. Um, But uh, when it comes to ticking a box, they're at least affiliating with us. So that would give a sense of openness um, to those people. But that's just the Anglican group. If you expand it out to the Christian affiliation group, it's it's, uh, seven in ten seven in ten households would consider some sort of Christian affiliation. Um, So again, seven out of ten households, you knock on the door, some sort of Christian affiliation. And so what that means is people are not necessarily as against the gospel as we think they are, and it is basically our feelings. Uh, If you spend a lot of time on newspaper websites or social media, you'll see a lot of very loud people that are not indicative of necessarily the, the community around us. I think most people just don't care. Uh, about what we believe uh, rather than being anti completely anti so I think it's partly a feeling and it's partly recognizing actually I'm not good enough to do this anyway it's partly our own weakness and I feel that too Uh, so how can we continue well remind ourselves that perhaps people aren't as against things as we think they are uh, and remember that that's uh, actually part of the weakness that we share Uh, next thing uh, verse 15, we are an aroma to God as well as amongst everyone else. In what way are we are the aroma, uh, are we an aroma of Christ to God? Um, I think this is in relation to, in some ways, 
in relation to the Old Testament sacrificial system, whenever there was a sacrifice there, it was described as an aroma pleasing to God, as forgiveness was given or whatever the, uh, the, uh, the offering was for. And so I think that's partly it. When we give our life to this ministry that God has called us to, that's a pleasing aroma to him, to put it that way. Uh, but it's also uh, an aroma to the, to the people around us as we proclaim Christ one to another. So I think that's what that verse is saying as well. Uh, next thing, what can we pray for me, I presume this question says, and for each other when we have a bad week? Uh, well, we can pray that we just understand it properly. Um, I, I, I will say all of this stuff, and probably by the end of the week, I'll whinge to Kel that I'm not the right person for this job again. Right? There you go. Uh, don't ask her on next Sunday, but that's true. It's pretty much the cycle of, of my life all the time. Uh, I just regularly think it's not right uh, for me to be doing it. Um, that, that's not, I'm not trying to say that that's about me, but I'm, uh, what I am saying is what I need is the reminder um, that she gives me, what I need is the reminder that other people give me. Uh, just this week, as I was talking about some of those things that uh, inside our staff team, talking about some of those things I mentioned at the beginning that were getting me down, uh, some people in there said, hey, hang on a second, uh, just get yourself in order and put a, a gentle and helpful corrective to me, which I appreciate. Um, so I think that's what we can pray for each other. Um, because when you, get, when you start to feel like that, uh, you need someone to gently come up to you and say, listen, this is not, this is not what it's about. Um, uh, so I think that's what we should pray for each other. Uh, but again, it's easy for me to say it right now, but by the end of tonight, I probably won't say that anymore. <laughs> so, we, yeah, that's hard. It's hard. Next one. It's human to want a great ministry. It's godly to work hard under God uh, to the ministry we have been given as small as it seems. Oh, that's a comment. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. It is human to... Uh, to want to do that Um, that's true Uh, next question how does God give us strength Uh, well this this doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense but God gives us strength when uh, he uh, gives us the weakness to rely on him because the strength comes from him this is why God always does things in in an upside down way and if you think about it like the rest of the world you'll never get it because if you think God saved the world by a guy dying on the cross makes no sense God makes changes in people's life by people speaking boring messages like this one. doesn't make sense. But that's how God chooses to do things, by all of the wrong reasons, so all of the glory can come to him and not to other people. That's the point of it. So how do we give, get strength from God? By actually uh, understanding where we fit underneath him, I think, is the, is the answer to that and where we trust in him. Uh, I'm losing my way here. There's time for one or two more. Uh, what things should we be looking for to testify that God is at work, if not miracles? Um, well, as I mentioned, uh, Jesus did his miracles and they were to, they were to uh, prove his divinity amongst the people. At the same time, though it did prove his divinity amongst the people, the miracles that he did didn't have the effect of drawing people to have faith in him. That's actually true. We need to reset what we think about the miraculous things that God is doing. God is not doing amazing things in the world by doing all sorts of miraculous things. God is doing amazing things in the world by getting that ministry of greater glory and making that happen. When people's hearts and lives are changed by the gospel of Jesus, that is more glorious than Moses going up the mountain and parting the Red Sea and all that stuff. And we've got to remember it that way uh, because that's, that's the way God works. He takes weak and foolish uh, word about a cross and brings change to people's lives. That's the miraculous word. So what should we be looking for? We should be looking for heart change in people's lives. That's what you should be looking for. 
Um, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they're not telling the truth. That's what you should be looking for. How do we find weakness in a world that tells us we are strong? Uh, that's the same, in a way, the same question as before. Uh, we've got to work hard to trust God. And that's, that's a hard thing to do when we think we can do everything by ourselves. Uh, there might be one more here. Uh, just this last one. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That's from chapter 3, verse 15. Is this just an illustration of a hardened heart? Uh, no, I don't think so. So in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul is referring to what it used to be like in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And a way you might say it is, you don't see clearly. So that's what happens when a veil comes over. You don't see clearly what God is doing. And the Old Testament, as amazing as it was, with all the stuff that Moses did, was a veil over the face of what God was doing in the world. Whereas the New Covenant of the New Testament is the veil off and you can see clearly what God is doing in the world and uh, he's bringing about change in people's lives. So um, if you want to go back to the old way of life with the rules and the laws and all the rest of it in the Old Covenant, you won't see what God is doing clearly. And so I think that's what Paul is talking about in chapter 3, verse 15 that is there. All right, we're always open for questions. Let's uh, have some more questions over dinner time a bit later on. But in the meantime, I'm going to pray. Then we'll sing our final song. Let's uh, bow our heads as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the ministry that you have given to us is not from us, but from you. And that you're at work as you through us spread the aroma of Christ to the world. And we ask, please, that you might help us to take up this ministry of speaking a weak word about a cross Uh, and a crucified saviour to this world and that you might help us to recognise what it is that's going on at that time, that as you do your work of personal ministry and spiritual ministry, that we might see that it really is more glorious than what we see in the Old Testament. Lord, when we feel that, therefore, that we're not sufficient for the task, we ask, please, that you would strengthen us by faith in you, that we might see that actually... You are at work through us, even when we have uh, that bad week or the feel the imposter syndrome coming upon us. We ask, please, that you would therefore strengthen us for this task, not with a strength that comes from us, but one that comes from you as we trust you, that you are at work as we speak this weak message to each other and to the world. Uh, Please uh, remind us of this, because it's such an upside-down way of thinking about life and the world. And so we ask, please, that we might see your ways clearly as we are immersed in the different ways of this world around us. So please teach us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.